Hey, welcome back to the As You Are podcast. We are back with another week in the book of John. Today we're going to study chapters two and three, which are so good. And yes, that means we will hit John 3.16, which of course is famous, and it is the gospel. So it is so good. We absolutely can't wait to dive into these details with y'all and share what we've learned this week. I am really loving John. Me too. So as somebody who would say this is your favorite book of the Bible, how is it restudying it right now? Are you learning some new things? I definitely am. There was something, we'll get into it in a little bit, but there's something that I learned today that I was mind blown by it, and I'm really excited to share. It's been cool as we study scripture, like the Lord continues to reveal more and more and just like connects more and more things too. Like I did a study on the book of Exodus and numbers um, last spring and now like reading through and being like oh my gosh wait that's referring to that part in exodus like i don't know the bible is just it's one big story and it's all pointing to jesus and it's so beautiful i'm excited to talk today we're going to be focusing on john 2 and 3 yeah actually when i was driving back from taylor swift i got on the phone with my sister And we started talking about random stuff, just life. And I found myself being like, but in John, when Nicodemus comes comes to Jesus and talks to him, (laughs) literally was like referencing John too. So yeah, I mean, for me, it's taking a life of its own, reading it slowly. I'm really intentionally digging into, like you're saying, references. And yeah, I agree. I'm very excited to share some of the random things that I learned as I was digging in a little deeper. So um, before we dive in, will you pray for us? I would love to. Jesus, thank you so much for this time. I pray that you would bless this conversation, that it would be useful and beneficial to whoever's listening to it. God, would you reveal more about yourself to Emily and I, and also to each person that listens to this podcast. Lord, would you use what you want to use and let everything else just fall to the side. And Lord, we just say we love you and we trust you and we can't wait to learn more and more about you. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we are going to pick up at chapter two. If you'll remember from last week, we talked about John the Baptist a lot, how he testified that Jesus was God. Mm-hmm. Jesus also called his first four disciples. So we're picking up at chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Awesome. Okay, so this is Jesus' first miracle. and. Yep. His debut of his ministry, which is a really big deal. And 
I listened to a whole sermon just on this. Amazing. It is a really big, so it's the first of the seven main miracles. And I love that it's at a wedding. I don't know. I was thinking about that this morning. Just what weddings symbolize is like obviously a covenant, but also a new beginning and like something new is about to happen. And joy. And joy, celebration. And yeah, so much. Like, and, yeah. and there's so many references throughout the Bible about us being the bride and Jesus being the bridegroom. Yeah, they always say bridegroom, yeah. which is like <laughs> so confusing to me, but it literally just means groom yes. in our terms. But there's several things that stood out to me as I was studying this story. And I listened to an old sermon from Tim Keller. Mm. It was really good. And he pointed out several things and addressed several things that I had questions about. I don't know. He didn't address this first, but something that has always stood out to me is right here at verse four. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then she says, do whatever he tells you to the servants. And Mm -hmm. so she basically is, is asking him to do this miracle. And the thing that Tim Keller said about it, he said, this tone is, if you look at everything else that Jesus says to anyone else, this is a sharper tone than you normally expect from Jesus. And so there definitely is something here, but he he's wrestling with something, but he makes the decision for this to be his first miracle for several reasons. And one of the reasons that he pointed out was this isn't just a party where they ran out of wine. He was saying that in ancient times, your wedding is the event of your life. Yep. And you would basically celebrate for like a month. Right. Jesus's mom is saying that the wine has run out like in the middle of the month. Mm-hmm. There's so much time left. And so he's saving this this couple and this family from humiliation. From shame, yeah. Tim Keller said that we don't live in a shame and honor culture. Right. Our culture is very individualistic. We're celebrated for doing our own thing. And it's very much okay to be different or it's even like more accepted to be a disappointment. (laughs) But I think that in Jesus's culture, it's very much based on shame and honor. So we couldn't really understand how important this was. This would have brought shame on their entire family. And Jesus chooses to intervene, which is so full of grace. So much grace. Yeah. And when he says, my hour has not yet come. He's not talking about the time to start his ministry, which I had thought. He's talking about the hour. Whenever he refers to the hour, he's talking about his death. Right. Yep. Like This is another thing that points to the fact that he really was fully man and fully God because he he wasn't ready to die yet. Yeah. And he was wrestling with it. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say is that the master of the feast, which is from verse... It was like a role Mm -hmm. that people would have had in ancient times at weddings and festivities like this. They were literally in charge, sort of like the wedding planner, like literally in charge of everyone having a good time. So Jesus sends these ceremonial jars that they used to use for like religious purification. And he's filled them up with water and then turned it into wine and sends it to the master of the feast. And he says that it's truly great wine. So one of the things that I saw pointed out was that another reason that everything happened 
symbolically the way that it did is because Jesus is saying like ultimately he's the master of the feast and that he wants us to be fulfilled and full of joy. So I thought those were really cool symbols that are tucked into this story. Yeah. And things that I kind of had glossed over before. And it's cool because the master of the feast doesn't just say it's great. He says it's better than what was presented before. And one thing that I, my study Bible says is that in the old Testament, they viewed wine as joy and God's blessing. And then it says in parentheses, but never drunkenness. So make sure you hear that. Um, Because they were so focused on staying pure and following the rules and following the law like there had become this spiritual Mm, barrenness jesus is coming to bring new life and new joy and a new way of living when you get married like you start a life together and that your wedding day is the day one of that and it's really cool that jesus's ministry in the book of john starts with a wedding i think that's um really beautiful I think it's so cool too. But the the miracle is done, like even though he at first is like, my hour has not yet come, the miracle is still done really privately. Like he could have made a big scene about it, but he doesn't. He does it privately. I remember reading this story in like sixth grade and imagining being one of the servants. Yes. So it doesn't say taste it, mm-hmm. make sure it tastes good. It just says draw out the water that you just filled and take it to the master of the feast. And so imagine being one of those servants, like, you don't know, you know, you're like, what if this is awful? What if it's actually still just water? And then like, they take it to the master of the feast. And he's like, this is better than anything I've ever tasted. I remember, like I was saying, being in sixth grade and thinking about like, whoa, imagine being one of those servants and then like coming back to your friend and being like, dude, guess what just happened? Like, this is crazy. I just put water in there and the master of the feast is saying it tastes amazing. Like, what, what is going on? Yeah. Obviously the servants saw and knew. Then in verse 11, it says, and his disciples believed in him. Yeah. It's also cool at the end. It like tells us what the first miracle accomplished, that it manifested his glory and that his disciples believed. And I, like, we don't, Always see that at the end of a miracle. All right, so to keep us moving forward in the story, we're going to read John 2, verses 13 through 25. Um, And this is going to feel like a little bit of a tone shift, like the story (laughs) kind of takes a turn. So it says, verse 13, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling ox and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Okay, so... Yes, quite the tone shift. We go from a celebratory wedding 
to Jesus is really mad and he is driving people out of the temple. What they would do is they would like mark up all of these things, especially the animals. I was like, why were there animals there? And they were mm-hmm. for sacrifices. And so I saw like a little commentary that said that Jesus was like angry for multiple reasons, like just for the honor of God's temple and for, for honoring God, but also angry that they would stand as a barrier between people mm-hmm. and God. Yeah, if you read through some of the Old Testament scriptures, it says specifically like what each animal was sa- sacrificed for. Um, and we also know that it was Passover. So they were having a lot of people traveling into Jerusalem because during Passover, everybody comes into the city. There were different parts of the temple. And this is something mm. I learned this morning that I was like, whoa, this is crazy. So that area of the temple was called the Courts of the Gentiles, and it's the outermost ring of the temple, and it's the only place where Gentiles were allowed. And so it was disrupting their worship. Part of John's like main theme is that Jesus came for all. And so the fact that he's like so angry, I think also ties into that as he's like, I came for all people, not just for the Jews, not just for the Gentiles, and you are creating a barrier between God and the Gentiles. So I don't, I read that and was like, that is crazy. Like, I didn't realize that that was specifically where they were selling the animals. Cause for the Jews in those days, they probably would have thought, like, well, it doesn't really matter. Like, this is where the Gentiles come, you know? Like, cause you're born Jewish. Yeah. So like, would those Gentiles have been people, obviously they were coming to the temple, so they were converted, but they weren't born Jewish. Is that true? So it says in my study Bible, by conducting their business in this specific part of the temple complex, however, these individuals disrupted the worship of non-Jewish God-fearers and thus obstructed the very purpose for which the temple existed. So they're like... So they believed in God and came to worship during Passover, but they weren't Jewish by birth. Right. And so they yeah. weren't allowed farther into the temple. They were only allowed in that one area. Wow. But all of that was being disrupted because that's where they were selling all the animals. Isn't that that's crazy? So crazy. And like to see Jesus get defensive of us. For his people. Yeah, for everyone. It is really, really cool. But it is really beautiful. So he drove everybody, all of those people, and freed the animals um, out of the temple. And then he starts to have yeah. this conversation with the Pharisees again. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees made up the Sanhedrin, which is like the council that made all of the rules and like regulated the laws and that kind of stuff. It was about 70 men. So um, very, very small group of people in the grand scheme of things. And so he starts talking to them and they're like, mm-hmm. so you just drove everybody out of the temple And you're acting like you have authority to do this. So prove it, basically. Like, prove that you're God. Right. And he says, I'll raise this temple up, or I will tear it down and raise it up in three days. And he's foreshadowing his resurrection. But they're like, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. There is no way, you know, whatever, that you can raise it up in three days. Which is fair. Yeah. they They didn't understand it. They didn't, like... They couldn't get it. But still, yeah, they take it so literally. They're like, this man's crazy. Like, what is he talking about? Right. Um, in my 
Passion Translation Bible, they put lots of notes like this, which I think is really cool. They said as a note on verse 20, where it says it's taken 46 years to build this temple. The note said, our bodies slash like the new temple for the Holy Spirit have 46 Mm -hmm. chromosomes in each cell. What? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Isn't that cool? That's crazy. That's so cool because our bodies become the The temple temple. because of the Holy Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit lives in us. And obviously because Jesus, when he dies on the cross, he's going to be raised in three days. And when that happens, the temple becomes... Eventually our bodies become temples. Yeah. That makes sense. Wow, that's wild. And it's cool. The last part of that little section when it says after he died, was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered. It says that after he had been raised from the dead, they remembered this story and understood. So crazy. Um, I don't know. I I like to think about them like sitting around being like, oh, do you remember when he like drove the people out of the temple and said he would raise it again in three days? He was dead for three days. Like what? This is crazy. Like, I don't know. I think it's fun to think about that. That is, I mean, I know. I think it's so cool. They're like looking back over everything and like, wow, he did this. He did that. Oh my gosh, this is crazy. How did we not see it? Right, exactly. So. Exactly. Yeah. For some reason, this next chapter is what stood out to me Hmm. so much. This story of Nicodemus, which I have heard and studied before, but I took some new things from it this time. So I'm going to read it to you. Chapter three, verse one. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe it if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Oh my goodness. A good conversation. It is a great conversation. Just to set the scene a little bit, Nicodemus is part of the governing body called the Sanhedrin. He's also... Like, maybe even part of a more elite group. He's, like, one of the actual teachers. Yeah. And they started to have this very serious conversation where Jesus is calling into question the heart behind religious behavior versus being what he calls born again, which I think is super cool. 
Yeah, well, one thing I was struck by is just like the fact that Nicodemus comes at night because in John's gospel, we know there's a theme of light and darkness. And yes, Nicodemus comes at night, but he still comes to Jesus. You know, like he still comes with these questions. And part of him coming at night is also probably a little bit like he's He's afraid. I don't. Yeah, he's embarrassed. And I don't know if the other religious leaders knew he was going but I, it just feels like a very earnest and honest conversation. Like Nicodemus is just coming like, hey, I want to understand. Yeah, I think so too. Because obviously this whole time the Jews have been against him. So they've been sending yeah. people trying to test him. And this is Nicodemus like isolating himself and coming to Jesus to say, help me understand. Yes. I actually see that there's evidence, but I just want to know what's going on. Oh, wait, this is... For some reason, I'm just putting this together. So what you said about the area of the temple where like Gentiles could only be in this certain area because they were never going to be allowed in the temple. Uh-huh. And Jesus, in this conversation with Nicodemus, is saying you have to be born again. Oh, like interesting. Like he's basically saying everyone, including the Jews, has to be born again in the spirit to be near to God. He says, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That was verse five. And earlier in verse three, he says, unless one's born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. And so I think that what he's communicating to Nicodemus here is you can be a teacher of the law. You can be devout. You can follow every law and have the birthright of being born Jewish and into the family of God, but you have to be born again of the spirit to really know God. And he gets to verse nine. He's asking, how can these things be? And and Jesus says in verse 10, are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. So I looked into that a little bit and he said, he knows Nicodemus should understand because he's a teacher of the law. So he's like, these things have been referenced before. These ideas are not insane. Mm-hmm. The water that he references in Verse 5 comes from Ezekiel 36, and it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities and your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your Mm. heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you. So that's really cool that that's from Ezekiel because this is, like we said before, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. And these are some of the things that the teachers of the law would be super well acquainted with. And so Jesus is like, you know the law and you know that I've been foreshadowed and that you're resisting it. And I don't know why. And then he gets to verse 16, which is the summary Mm -hmm. of the gospel. And it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And it goes on after that. But the words that I circled this time, like with this context, is that, yes, he's giving a message to all of us. Like we can read this and take a lot out of it. But if you put yourself in the story, the reason why he's telling this to Nicodemus is because he's saying, for God so loved the world. Mm-hmm. that whoever believes in him. In all throughout the Old Testament, it talks about how God loves Israel and his people. But Jesus is saying in this moment, 
No. God loves the world. Whoever chooses to come will have eternal life. So he's promising eternal life, but he's talking about it in the present tense. And so there's a new life that you get. Cool. Right now, like right when you believe that's not completed, like it'll be completed eternally, like one day. But for right now, you still get a piece of this, like of the kingdom of God in you. Isn't that cool? Yeah, it is really cool. And it's for Nicodemus, it would have been like a earth shattering revelation that God loves the world and not just Israel. Because you're right. It talks about that a lot in the Old Testament. But I love, I hadn't heard that before about eternal life, like it being a present tense, because that's so true. Like, I think sometimes when we think about eternal life, we think like, oh, when we're dead, which is true. But also thinking about having eternal life, even while we're here on earth and like the fact that we can come into the presence of God now because jesus died and rose and now we don't have to go to a temple we don't have to sacrifice animals like we get to come into the presence of god now and experience eternal life here on earth and it reminds me of like when jesus teaches his disciples how to pray your your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven um that's not just something that's far off like that is something that god wants for us here and now um One thing that I read too that I think is just important, the fact that he goes on to say, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. My study Bible talks about how Jesus is saying not believing is not just like a safe neutral zone that you can sit in. I think about that often of like what we believe and think about Jesus is the most important thing about us. And so, like, what do you really believe? I know. I think that's something that just as a challenge moving forward into this week, journal about it and ask God to reveal to you things about your own heart. I love that passage from Psalms that says, search me and know me, like asking the Lord to search your heart so that he can reveal to you anything that's not of him. That's a good prayer to start your quiet time with. There's a verse in the Bible, Jesus is going to heal, I think, somebody's son, And he asked the father, do you Mm, believe the father being the father of the son? And the guy responds, I believe, but help my unbelief. And I feel that way so often. It's like, Lord, I believe, but help the areas of my life where there is unbelief. And I think that's something for us to pray as well. Like, Lord, help me. Yes, I I believe, but also I have doubts. And so help my doubts. So good. Like fill in those spaces. One other thing stood out to me that I skipped over because I think the most important thing about this chapter is John 3 16 but I didn't want to skip over this one section it's verse 14 and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life that comes from it's in numbers yeah numbers 21 the Jews are in the desert and they've been saved from being slaves in Egypt, but they have gotten impatient and they've started to complain. This is what they said. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water and we we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of them died. 
And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we've spoken out against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at it and live. That story is foreshadowing Jesus dying on the cross. Oh yeah, for sure. The serpent is going to be raised up on a stick, yep. aka Jesus dying on a cross, and when the people look to the serpent, they live. And yep. when we look to Jesus, when we turn to Jesus, when our eyes and our lives are fixed on him, we get to experience eternal life. Yeah. It's ma- it's, it's really cool. So <laughs> we really nerded out on some of the stuff. It's it's so good. If you want to read chapter 3, verses 22 through 36, it's another story about John the Baptist. Yep. And it's a conversation where he just continues to point everyone back to... Jesus, he says one thing that I think is worth noting and ending on. This is probably a verse that you've heard and not realized exactly where it came from. It's chapter 3, verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John the Baptist at this point still has disciples that are following his ministry. And he's still baptizing people. And at this point, Jesus and his disciples are also baptizing people. John's disciples say to him, I've heard that more people are going to Jesus now. Like everyone's saying that his baptism is better. Right. And he's so kind to them, even though they're missing the point. And he's, I bet he's sitting there thinking like, how could you follow me for this song and not realize the point? Right. But he says very kindly, he is the one that we've all been waiting for. And at this point, he must increase and I must decrease. And I think that's such a good challenge to all of us, too, because our human nature will always probably push us in the direction of missing the point from time to time. Wanting us to increase. You know, right. like what he's saying about that is it's less about me. Like, stop looking at me and you need to look to Jesus. Yeah. And that's definitely humbling. And it's such a good point. Like, whether you're in ministry or whether you're just moving on to the next phase of your life, tempted to think that it's all about how well you're doing. We could keep looking back at ourselves and strive for ourselves to increase or focus our attention on Jesus because he's the one that brings life. Yep. So that is what I've taken from John 2 and 3 this week. It was an hour and six minutes of us chitty chatting about the Bible. So, I mean, to me, that says something. It does. There's so much to learn and there's so much we could say and there's so much we didn't say. And we just pray that it would be useful and life-giving to whoever's listening. Tune back in next week for chapters four and five. See ya.